Thank you for tuning into the Melon Mania podcast where we talk honeydews, cantaloupes, and of course, the eternal watermelon. Today's topic, I'm really excited to get into it. Just really fucking pumped about melons right now. Um, we're going to talk about pumpkins, you know? Are they really melons? Are they not? We're going to get to the bottom of it. But first, I need to share our melon fact. So, you guys can probably tell how excited I am about melons right now. And our melon fact this week is brought to you by Magnum Melons, the biggest melons on the planet. And uh, here we go, guys. Let's get into this fact. So the term melons referring to a woman's breasts have actually been around since the time of ancient Greece, uh, when all foreign fruit were referred to as melons and voluptuous uh, women's breasts were referred to as melons as well. Uh, I guess it didn't really matter if the breasts were voluptuous. If they were small breasts, they could still call it melons because uh, the small fruits were also called melons. Anyways, um, my weird accent is falling apart i'm not sure maybe that was like a geeky accent or something like that uh anyways this is the photo friends podcast i appreciate you tuning in for part three on landscape photography i'm super excited to get into it as always i am your photographer jared poirier and uh i'm here i've got my tea ready i'm feeling good feeling amped up today we've got a long (laughs) long episode to get into we have a lot to cover today i didn't really i couldn't really come up with another word you know i wanted to say we've got a thrilling episode i think it's going to be a thrilling episode uh but uh content packed as well we've got a lot of a lot of stuff that we're going to get into here Before that's even possible, though, I want to get you guys up to speed. You know, if you don't want to go back and listen to those two other episodes, I'm just kidding. I really hope that you do go and listen to the first two parts of this series. Uh, But just to summarize how we've gotten here, basically, we've witnessed the birth of photography with Joseph Nesifor Nieps and uh, Louis Daguerre. We've seen the evolution of photography technology uh, over time, basically photography becoming easier to do and more accessible. Uh, Even going through this period that we're about to cover now, kind of the 1950s onward, we're not going to see a lot of people shooting uh, digitally. First of all, digital didn't even exist until 1975, and it wasn't practical until around, you know, the 80s with Sony and Nikon putting out uh, commercial use, you know, DSLR style cameras. Uh, Also, for some reason, with landscape photography, people just tend to do it on film. That's kind of just like the the zeitgeist of uh, landscape photography, I guess. You know, and then there's the third big uh, takeaway from the initial episodes of this series, which we've seen a variety of approaches to photography, photography being viewed uh, as a tool and then kind of evolving into viewing photography more as an art. And even if you accept that photography is an art, you know, you still have the different uh, ways of looking at it within the community of artists, right? You have 
uh, more of people like Emerson or Adams who are using photography to reflect the beauty and majesty of nature. And then uh, you have photographers like Brigman and Cunningham on the other side who are uh, using photography as a method for opening people's minds and achieving social change. So now it's time to get into some photographers here. We're going to talk about four photographers this week. Um, the other episodes were a little bit America heavy. So we're going to get away from America and cover some international photographers. And we're going to start with Michael Kenna. He was born in England. His background is Irish. Uh, he was born the latest of any of the photographers on this list, but I want to cover him first because I think of any of the photographers that we're going to discuss today, he fits into the tradition of landscape photography nicely. Michael Kenna uh, came from a Irish working class family. He got into doing art. Uh, I believe he thought about becoming a priest or something like that, but that didn't really work out. Um, but if he was going to do art, he needed to do it in a way that was practical, in a way that he could make a living. And that's why he chose photography over some other uh, forms of art, like painting and stuff like that, which I guess he was also interested in. Notably, he was inspired uh, by the work of photographer Bill Brandt, and he worked under Ruth Bernhard in order to refine his skills and, you know, get some other connections where he would be able to display his work and get a little bit more well-known. With Michael Kenna here, we see uh, something that is going to unify most, if not all, of the photographers that we're going to talk about today, which are these, like, ambitious, long-term projects that uh, take a lot of time, a lot of effort, even a lot of travel, uh, really undertaking things that require a lot of patience, right? And a lot of planning and just a lot of commitment to the photography that you're doing. For those nerds out there, he shot on mostly Holga uh, cameras and Hasselblad's. Uh, the latter of which we will be talking a lot about in our next series. There's a little teaser for you guys. And, you know, like traditional landscape photographers, he's shooting film, he's shooting black and white, uh, but he's kind of bringing his own flair to it. He's doing these super long exposures up to 10 hours, apparently. And, you know, he's capturing dusk and dawn. So that means staying up at crazy hours of the night and, you know, really being dedicated to your photography, really committing, really putting yourself uh, on the line a little bit there. Sacrificing, right? I've seen his work uh, described by many as ethereal. I'm not really sure what that word means, uh, but I think that maybe a better way to describe it is having an otherworldly perfection, right? That's what I get out of it. Uh, the way that he's able to frame and photograph nature, uh, it's like untouched by human beings. You really just see like the tranquility um, and uh, maybe maybe it's a little bit weird to say, but like tranquility and like ominous, uh, ness, if that's a word of nature. 
it's a little bit evocative. I've said it before about uh, Ansel Adams and others, uh, evocative of Chinese and Japanese landscape painting. You see the interaction of the landscape and the weather. You know, you've got like mountains and clouds covering the peaks of the mountains, really playing with fog, playing with mist, uh, the depth that that can provide, you know, uh, not just shooting on days that are super clear, right? But willing to be a little bit more experimental and utilize uh, those weather conditions in order to be more creative with your landscape photography. I also think that it's super interesting to note with Kenna here, the um, dynamic nature of his photography, right? He has, and we've mostly talked about these, um, his you know, very blissful, uh, meditative nature photography of untouched nature, right? But he also uh, tackled some heavier subject matter as well. If you want to check out some of that stuff, his industrial landscape work in Detroit uh, is one example. And he got into some really heavy subject matter, maybe the heaviest subject matter of all uh, with his series on the Holocaust death camps. So, you know, Michael Kenna, he's a interesting and dynamic figure. I do think that the way that he's characterized, um, you know, by most uh, photography fans is actually pretty fair for the most part, though. I think that it's best to understand him in that tradition of landscape photographers uh, kind of doing things by the book for most of it. And I do think that his ambition and his dedication is something that's really uh, notable here. You know, we have these huge scale projects for, uh, you know, photography exhibitions, traveling all around Asia um, and photographing a whole bunch of Buddhist sites is one example. Just being completely devoted to photography and putting yourself on the line, right? Like sacrificing yourself a bit for photography. That's something that we're going to see uh, quite a few of these artists do uh, as we dig a little bit deeper into landscape photography uh, in the second half of the 20th century. Okay, let's talk about Italian photographer Luigi Ghiri. Uh, he was inspired by, oddly enough, this is definitely going to tie in with our next series. He was inspired by the photos that were coming out of, you know, Earth from space, from uh, Gemini and Apollo program and stuff like that. A uh, quote from him here, it was not, uh, speaking on the images from outer space, it was not only the image of the entire world, but the image that contained all other images of the world. Uh, kind of an interesting point here. We've talked a few times on this show about, you know, especially like living here in Toronto, as I do, the idea that everything's been shot, right? That like any location that you can go to, someone's already taken photos of that. He's uh, basically pointing out that literally everything has been shot. All of the possible photos in the world, uh, everything contained in the world was was already contained in those photos that were coming out of, you know, the space race and whatnot. So 
Uh, kind of an interesting point there. He seems to have taken that as a challenge, though, uh, rather than letting him... Uh, letting himself get super discouraged by this fact that uh, everything's already been shot, <laughs> even from space. Uh, he shot a lot of landscapes, though, and he shot them in color, which is a definite departure from the convention of landscape photographers. Uh, even most of the people that we're going to talk about later on are shooting, you know, black and white. Luigi Geary is uh, definitely a type of guy that once you start to dig into his life and work you want to know a little bit more uh seems like the type of person who i'd really like to hang out with you know eat some pizza uh drink some rosé and and talk about photography um he really emphasizes the relationship between fiction and reality of his work um i would say that a lot of his work has a quality of calm surrealism uh he's not taking the world uh, especially when it comes to, you know, advertising and stuff like that. He's not taking that at face value. But at the same time, I never really get a sense of desperation or anything like that from his work. Uh, largely, it just makes me feel like this is the work of someone who had a nice life, which, you know, isn't a bad thing. So yeah, much of his work revolves around pointing out the absurdity of everyday life. Uh, a lot of the time, you are the distant, detached observer where you're looking at his photos with a sense of mystery. And there's definitely a lot to do with like symbolism and meaning, uh, all that type of interplay in his photography work. So, you know, I do think that uh, Luigi Geary here is a figure in photography who is worth considering. Uh, it's worth looking over what he brought to the table, um, the way that he incorporated advertising, the way he incorporated, you know, existing images, existing scenes, uh, but, you know, with a critical eye and kind of playing with imagery, playing with meaning uh, in this kind of surrealistic way. Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely worth looking into. I recommend checking out some of his stuff. All right, we're going to get into a little bit of the heavy side of photography again with the figure of Sebastio Salgado. So Sebastio is a Brazilian photographer. Um, there's definitely a left-wing leaning going on, uh, left-wing message in his photography work, uh, the stuff around working class rights, um, the, you know, treatment of industrial workers. And, uh, you know, I find his work is very intense, very provocative. Uh, this like photojournalism work that he's doing, essentially, he wanted to show what was going on, what wasn't really be being shown, right? Like the, the downside of capitalism, I guess. Um, he was definitely inspired by the figure uh, Lewis Hine, who was a, another, um, you know, kind of political activist, uh, photojournalism type dude who, you know, preceded uh, Sebastio here. 
His most famous work is a collection of photos entitled Workers. It documents the harsh conditions of industrial workers during the Brazilian gold rush in the 1960s, something that I had never even heard about. Uh, but Brazilian people would probably have heard about it. Weird that these things uh, get buried uh, in the history, you know, we, tr we kind of want to think about the progress in that and, uh, and not the people who were kind of trampled on along the way. Uh, but anyways, we look at uh, a totally different approach to landscape here. We have people kind of destroying the landscape. Um, they are embedded in the landscape in a way, right? To go back to, you know, what we were talking about with Brigman. Um, but that was much more of a harmonistic uh, relationship between people and the landscape. Uh, this is much more aggressive, you know, far from uh, peaceful and natural coexistence of nature and people. Uh, this is really more of a documentation of people destroying nature um, because they're forced to for uh, larger reasons of uh, economic system, I suppose. But, you know, not all of his work is super intense. Uh, like other figures that we've talked about here, like Michael Kenna, he was a dynamic photographer. Uh, later on in his career, he settled down a little bit. Uh, he got more into uh, peaceful, patient uh, landscape photography, really living in the environment, and also did quite a lot of work uh, in environmentalism you know, advocating for the preservation of the Brazilian rainforest. So uh, tying into that tradition of environmentalism that we've definitely seen echoed throughout uh, this entire series, actually. Another thing that I think really comes out of studying uh, Salgado's life and studying his work is this idea of sacrificing for your art, right? He's taking on these really uh, ambitious projects, traveling a lot, going to these uh, very um, harsh areas, you know, very harsh conditions. He's honest about the fact that these expeditions were really tough on him. They are tough on his body, uh, you know, kind of destroyed his body in many ways. So, you know, I wouldn't really recommend that you do that, uh, but it does say something about the sacrifice that's needed to create art that is special and goes above what's been done in the past, right? There are so many people who have done amazing things with photography up until this point. And if you want to stand out, you really need to be uh, pushing boundaries. All right, it's time to get into the final photographer of this episode, and that means the final photographer of our series on landscape photography. And I couldn't think of a better figure to, you know, close this whole thing off on than Hiroshi Sigamoto. He's a Japanese photographer, and I want to close off on him because I believe that he represents a very uh, dramatic departure from the rules and conventions of landscape photography up to this point. 
his work features a high degree of manipulation, like absolute manipulation, I guess. Uh, the most that we've covered in this series, for sure. Shooting with dioramas, taxidermy, shooting portraits in wax museums, uh, really trying to trick you, right? Trying to, in a way, make the point that when it comes to the photo, like the fake is almost as good as the real thing, I guess. Yeah, it's... It's weird. It really gets you thinking. Uh, he has a series on movie theaters that I really like where he goes into uh, very famous uh, landmark uh, movie theaters and he captures the duration of an entire film, right? Uh, kind of playing with the idea of capturing time. He's doing like a super long exposure, like play a film for two hours on the screen and then capture uh, the entire duration of the film with a long exposure, I guess, is how he did it. Uh, I'll put up some pictures on the Instagram so that you guys can check that out. His minimalist seascapes are something that we should probably talk about here uh, as, you know, this is the series on landscape photography. It's kind of the least interesting of his work to me at least but uh you know it is founded in the tradition of landscape of you know that uh pictorial kind of approach and using soft focus and stuff like that so he did a bit of that and if you want to check that out uh if that's your thing you know probably going to put up some pictures of that on the instagram as well but to me uh his his work with taxidermy his work creating these artificial scenes and then shooting them and kind of trying to pass them off uh, as like real uh, images that you captured in nature. In a way, it attempts to deceive you, but it also forces you to question what you're looking at, right? So I think embedded in his work is this like postmodern skepticism. Uh, he's kind of, I feel, trying to teach the viewer who's looking at his work, right? Like, I'm able to trick you. I'm able to put out this like nominal thing, this idea uh, within the photo. And you really need to be skeptical of that. You shouldn't just accept things on face value, I think is is the message that he's trying to give. But it's uh, it's art, right? So it's all up to interpretation. And that's Hiroshi Sigamoto, and that means that we've reached the end of our series on landscape photography. I hope that you've enjoyed this. Uh, I definitely did. I learned a shitload. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, I've definitely improved my knowledge of the earliest forms of photography, uh, you know, the technical side of photography. I've certainly gained a new appreciation for the art of photography as a uh, irreplaceable and underappreciated art form. You know, uh, people are a little bit more willing to accept like film and, and music uh, you know, photography, I think, gets overlooked quite a bit. Uh, but by going through this series and studying all of these great artists, uh, even, you know, me, who is somebody who is already really into photography, obviously, I guess I have a photography podcast, right? But uh, even I'm appreciating it more as a result of doing this series. As I read over this stuff, as I prepared to record this podcast for you guys, uh, it really was striking to me just the power that 
photography has, right? I guess it's easier to think about uh, historical events affecting art. You know, we've all seen that with like, uh, as I said, with Dada and stuff like that emerging out of the world wars. Um, but you look at how photography has shaped history as well, right? Um, how photography has changed our perception of society, how it's changed our perception of ourselves. And, uh, you know, acknowledging that power of photography, that that power of imagery to change history. I certainly have a newfound appreciation for all of the photographers who came before me, uh, all of the photographers who laid the groundwork, who developed the technology, you know, not just of cameras themselves, but also of developing photos, paved the way, right? It's so easy for us these days. Uh, we've just got memory cards in our expensive cameras. Uh, we can carry them, carry them around, shoot easily, throw them into Lightroom. And uh, that's only because these, um, you know, pioneers of photography worked so hard uh, to develop what we honestly take for granted today. And... I also have a newfound uh, understanding of the possibilities of photography, right? And that's something that's definitely going to come into play as we enter our next series, which is going to be, well, I can tell you guys, I guess. <laughs> it's going to be on the Apollo 11 program. We're going to talk about the early photos of space, how they came to be and how they impacted the human species. That's a series that I'm going to do with my good friend, Devin Kivioya, and I'm pumped for it, you guys. I think it's going to be probably, uh, maybe other than this episode, <laughs> the best podcasting I've ever done. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the Photo Friends podcast. If you want to see some images uh, that we've referenced throughout the episode, you can check out our Instagram photo underscore friends underscore pod if this is your first time listening to the podcast and you haven't clicked that little follow or subscribe button or whatever it is on the app that you use uh, go ahead and do that we are creating content every single week uh, usually I have a special guest and I my promise to you is that it will make you a better photographer okay something random before we go uh, always remember Keep a banana tucked in your left pocket, keep a pickle in your right pocket, and then you will never be without phallic fruit. <laughs>